Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of a 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan, and at the beginning of every episode, I read the intentions for why I started this podcast. I was born and raised in 3HO, and so I started this podcast, number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get therapy and other support, somatic therapy as needed, draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow or believe anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. On today's episode, we actually have a guest who was formerly on our podcast in episode number eight, and I do encourage you to go back and listen to his original podcast episode with us. Dr. Ron Alexander, formerly Shama Singh, is a mind-body psychotherapist international trainer of healthcare professionals specializing in creativity and trauma. He was recruited by Yogi Bhajan to co-found the original Kundalini Research Institute, KRI, in 1973, as well as co-founded the Center for Health and Healing at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. He conducted the early scientific research on Kundalini Yoga and other forms of meditation, including Zen and Vipassana, through the Veterans Memorial Hospital in Topeka, Kansas, and Santa Rosa Psychiatric Hospital in Santa Rosa, California, both in association with the Menninger Psychoanalytic Institute in Topeka, Kansas. He has been teaching yoga psychology, mindfulness, and trauma-informed yoga since 1974 and travels the world now teaching and conducting trainings and workshops. He's the author of Wise Mind, Open Mind, Finding Purpose and Meaning in Times of Crisis, Loss and Change. And his forthcoming book in spring of 2022, Core Creativity, A Mindful Approach to Unlocking Your Creative Abilities. For more information, you can go to ronaldalexander.com. I'm happy to have Dr. Ronald Alexander back on our podcast. In episode number eight, he spoke to 
Um, you spoke to leaving uh, early, being the early recruited um, to be one of the scientists of KRI, and then leaving and actually being a part of when Kate felt um, and Pamela were leaving at that time, and just like really on the inside. And I'm just so grateful for your a trauma informed background and all of the research you've done in the world of intersection of healing, trauma, and spiritual abuse. And on that note, I think we really need some support and listeners need some support on really what the heck to do with all of this. Yeah, in 1979, I was involved from 1973 to 79. And then I was approached, I think in 1986, by the attorneys for uh, Pamela and Kate Felt to do the psychological interviews. Mm. And so after I interviewed uh, both Pamela and Kate, I think it was very quick, like within 10 days after I submitted my report that Yogi Bhajan then settled through an unnamed Sikh charity in Vancouver and paid each of them off um, to avoid uh, further litigation because of the strength of my uh, psychological findings, having interviewed each of the women about the severity and the extent of their physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, financial abuse, and in um, both, especially in, in Pamela's case, that she had been forced to undergo an abortion in India uh, as a result of involvement with Yogi Bhajan sexually and almost died on the plane from Delhi to London vis-a-vis -vis, uh, blood loss. And then the horrific uh, amount of physical and sexual abuse and rape of Kate Felt, um, you know, the, the breaking of her jaw, the biting of her face and lips, uh, being held down, um, by her own sister was one of the attendants. Um, I believe her name was Guru Amritka. Yeah. And um, that was one of, you know, I've, I've been in the trauma field since 1970. And I would have to say that still to my day, other than that I've interviewed a couple of women in Eastern Europe who were traumatized through the wars and uh, rape and abuse. But Kate Felt's interview was up there with one of the most upsetting um, clinical interviews I ever experienced. And whenever I think of it, it's still upsetting to this day. Mm. That here was this guru, all dressed in white and having everybody else dress in white, and then just physically, you know, raping and beating and uh, terrorizing not only Kate and Pamela, but a whole host, as we now know, I call it the Me Too movement within 3HO. Yes. So many first generation, second generation children um, that, you know, he was using the school in India as a um, hunting ground in, uh, f for the younger girls. Literally grooming. Grooming. And also the irony of that he would have this um, women's summer camp for four to eight weeks every summer. And I can't tell you, I've spoken over the years to 10 different women uh, as patients who've come to me, who have all were either attempted to be groomed and or were groomed and then underwent you know, serious sexual involvement with him as a result of that. Um, the pure ones gathering together out of the, you know, Adi Shakti, Grace of God movement. The KWTC Grace of God movement, literally just using it as a ground of plucking. And you're saying you weren't in the Dharma at this time. You're saying as patients that came to see you, this was yeah. something you got because you're right there in Los Angeles. Yeah, because I was in Los Angeles and um, I was practicing at Cedar Sinai and I had founded, co-founded the Center for Health and Healing, mm. 
yeah. along with two of the um, the primary Sikh doctors uh, at that time. And um, so after I left, I was still there in the next uh, office. And so people would come to me um, who were undergoing, you know, abuse and torment. And uh, I would help them to over time heal and then to exit, uh, distract themselves. And then I also worked with from afar, someone who is a cult expert. I was never a cult expert. I was, as I said, more of a research scientist. But there was a, a fella, and to this day, he, he still is probably at the vanguard. His name is Stephen Hassan. Yeah. Dr. Stephen Hassan. You might want to... I've been speaking to him about, one, not speaking directly, but I've been talking about having him come on, and he had, he had asked about you know, asked about the podcast. Yeah, and in the early days, he and I used to co-refer clients back and forth to each other. And he went on to become a very esteemed uh, expert in the, in the area. So at this time, when people would come to you as a therapist, and this was happening repeatedly, like, you know this is happening, like there's, but there's nothing you can do? Did you speak to other people that were in 3HO still, even though you had left? Very rarely, only on the periphery. Um, but weren't the other two doctors you were saying that you co-founded Sinai with? Yeah, the Center for Health and Healing. One of them, his name was Dr. Uh, Jaswant Singh Khalsa. And his English name is Jeffrey Hawkins. And um, he and I had a lot of conversations and he shortly left somewhat in the early 80s also. Got it. Can you give listeners just a little background in terms of um, how you started and then when you left and kind of like your original joining for with KRI and then, but not too much because I know we don't have too much time, just a yeah. little history so that we can get to the context of I just feel like right now there's just so much confusion like with all this Me Too movement and then Predator abuse, financial abuse, spiritual abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse, like all this being exposed. And it's like what to keep. There's the yoga. And it's so confusing when there's good practices that are used in predatory ways. And so to have a little history about like when you identified that and then watching it from outside and then now for it to be exploding, I'd really like your lens on all that. Yeah. And I think um, the way you just said that is extremely well said is when there are good practices, the kind of separation that's needed so that one can, um, in essence, salvage the purity and the usefulness of whether they're meditative and or yogic practices from the abusive behavior of the teacher. So, Oftentimes, in, in the current um, vernacular, there are two polarities. There are those of us who uh, believe that you can salvage the purity of the teachings. And what I oftentimes re refer to in Kundalini Yoga is the essence of the technology and the bad behavior and the corruption and the moral uh, deficits of the teacher. And because I came up in the late 60s and um, early 70s, not only was I involved in helping people to exit from 3HO, but also many of the Zen centers um, so around the country, people would reach out to me because, for example, it's very well known in the Buddhist circles that there was a lot of uh, mayhem occurring with Roshi Baker in San Francisco. And I worked with a lot of the people from the San Francisco Zen Center and the Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, where I studied for over a 23-year period. And um, Choyum Trumpa Rinpoche, very notorious, an extraordinarily um, brilliant uh, Zogchen Tibetan and Vajrayana teacher mm. who um, he founded the Naropa Institute and the Shambhala uh, Society. And it was very well known that he was a 
a raving alcoholic who died, I think it was either 44 or 46. And, um, and then he passed on his lineage to a fellow named uh, Ozil Tensing, who ended up giving HIV to, I think, nine of his disciples. So that I was in the front lines of really sorting out a lot of really corrupt spiritual teachers. Mm. However, having studied with some of these, I call them the cast and cats and characters, um, their, their teachings were brilliant. Mm. And, you know, of course, I would, um, well, you asked how I got involved. I was involved um, with a counseling center called Room to Move at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and I was interning there. And we co-linked with a speakers, a distinguished speakers program through UMass Amherst and uh, Amherst College with a fellow named uh, Richard Cohen. And so we brought to both UMass Amherst and Amherst College, uh, Robert Thurman, who was actually a faculty member at Amherst College at the time, um, Alan Watts, Ken Kesey, Ram Das, Joseph Campbell, and a long list of um, very prolific uh, philosophers, uh, thought leaders, uh, spiritual teachers at the time. And so we brought to Amherst College, I was taking a, uh, a course on um, world religions. And so we brought to Amherst College just a few of these folks, for example, um, Sasaki Roshi from the Zen Center in um, Los Angeles. And then the following week, we brought out Yogi Bhajan. And so after the uh, class, he taught a two-hour class, uh, we went up and introduced ourselves and said, gee, we would like to study you uh, scientifically. And then, of course, he started the whole indoctrination, the seduction, uh, you know, come um, be my guest in Los Angeles. And it was all about re being recruited and mm. being seduced, mm. you know, mm. coming to Los Angeles and being uh, praised and the lavish dinners and him showing us his jewels. Now, I came from a very simplistic Irish Catholic background of 10 children. So I was not impressed with jewelry in fur coats and all this nonsense. I mean, I actually found Zen before I found Kundalini Yoga. And so I was always into the simple uh, eth ethic of less is better than more. Mm. And so that kind of, um, I called it extravagant buffoonery, uh, <laughs> really a red flag for me. Like, why does this guy, if he's such a master, need to show us all his jewels? And he's got all these fur coats and he's got these women dressed in white and they're in fur coats. And what it, year was this? This was 1973. 1973. And so I just want to tell listeners that what, what Dr. Ron is saying here, or Dr. Ronald Alexander is saying here is um, go back and listen to episode number eight because he tells the rest of the story and how the original KRI or Kundalini Research group of scientists came together and what was the intention and how he began to see through it as a boss, uh, a, a kid, street kid from Boston, not impressed. I want to bring you back to present day because I know our listeners really need to hear more about what you're speaking to, that not only were you able to AC through YB early on, and that's why you left the KRI group, and but then along the way, abuse victims, you help them not only as a psychotherapist, but then passing them on to colleagues that might have helped more specifically in, in unhooking from cult um, and the exit program, it sounds like. But you not only did that within within watching members of 3HO, but you did that in other spiritual communities where the leader was obviously predatory and leaving a community that you love and you're being abused in is not an easy thing. So can you speak to that, the challenge that we're faced right now as many of us, like even using the word like separating the technology 
from the teacher. To me, that language in and of itself has been used within 3HO as a way to not face the reality of abuse. It's just yeah. a way to bypass. And so I would like you to distinguish that language because on the essence of it, I like it because it's there's real and then there's the abuse wrapped around what's real and how do we heal when it's hard to tell the difference. Well, that's very well said. Um, I'll just fill in the blanks around everything that you said because um, what you said is very impactful and it, I will elucidate uh, on it and amplify it. Um, friends of mine, Ron and Mary Holnick, who were the founders of the University of Santa Monica, um, they often used the phrase spiritual bypassing. And so, and I think even some feedback I got after the first podcast that I did, <clears throat> that some people did not like me saying that the technology though still stands on its own. And um, I even used the phrase, because I think you asked me in podcast eight, did I think Yogi Bhajan was a master? Well, I'd like to just address <clears throat> man. You've paused. That many of the, the spiritual teachers that I studied with, uh, Choyam Trupa Rinpoche, um, Yogi Bhajan, I never studied with Baker Roshi, but I worked with many of the Zen students from the San Francisco Zen Center and Tassajara Zen Center. And it always struck me that there was this same similar thread, which was the bad behavior of the teacher, but a certain kind of integrity to that of which was being taught. And so for example, with Yogi Bhajan, um, people often, oftentimes uh, feel that because of his corrupt and bad behavior, that it corrupts all of the technology and the teachings. And I think what people need to, to do individually, and that's part of any good trauma healing, and I'm trained in the, the system of Peter Levine's somatic uh, experiencing uh, trauma healing, and that's, you have to separate out the traumatizing event uh, and or what is called in the, the spiritual uh, schools of thought, the, the, the trauma that's left over from the bad behavior of the teacher that spills onto and pollutes and infects and soils the integrity of the spiritual medium and or the spiritual method that's being taught. And so, for example, it's as basic of once I was mugged in Boston and it was in front of an Italian restaurant. Well, do I, have I gone through a period where I never ate Italian food again? Well, fortunately, I got into therapy to deal with that traumatic event. And so one of my favorite forms of eating out is an Italian restaurant because the traumatizing event was separated from the association, the negative association with that there was a mugging in front of an Italian restaurant. But if it could have stayed in your body where then you would have stayed associating the memory of a, a traumatic event to Italian food and then therefore you could go on in life and not like Italian food for the rest of your life and not even know why. Yes, and, and that's what we call the uh, collapsing between the traumatizing event and then the system or the school of teaching or the, or the technology. And when they collapse together, there's a fusion and a negative confluence. And so in, th in this instance, one could not be able to say 
chant a mantra or meditate or or do yoga practices or dynamic movements with breath because their unconscious or their body association would automatically link it to triggers associated with the trauma. Therefore, those two have collapsed on each other. Very nicely said. That's right. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. So it's important that when someone is leaving a spiritual uh, system, or a spiritual technology where they have been traumatized, abused, used, defrauded, misused. It's, it's important to work with the separating out of the traumatizing events or the in, in a way of like being in a cult is the whole system of thought is to separate out all of the unwholesome, what we call in Buddhist psychology, unwholesome negative uh, belief systems, the unwholesome uh, ways of thinking, feeling, uh, associating with the abusive teacher. And so, for example, for several years, I did very little Kundalini yoga from 1970 to, I mean, 79 to about 81. And then I started practicing uh, Ashtanga yoga. And in one of my trips to India, one of the teachers I was working with had also been involved in Kundalini yoga, but not with Yogi Bhajan. And so I rediscovered it, having spent though the couple of years in psychotherapy, sorting out all of the negative associations and the negative triggers. So I think it's really important that if somebody is, is suffering, which many people who have been abused in, in are um, within the 3HO system, people are very much uh, suffering. And that if they can get the proper help, especially I would highly rec- recommend the somatic experiencing therapy, Ericksonian mind-body therapy, um, gestalt therapy, all very useful tools for addressing what is called core level trauma, where a person's nervous system is then locked in either the patterns of fight, flight, or freeze. And they're, in essence, the deer in front of the headlights because they sat in front of a spiritual teacher and they had an open heart and they involved themselves for many, many years and gave up and sacrificed. And then only to find out that the teacher is trying to seduce them and or did seduce them, rape them, physically uh, beat them. Um, That all of that needs attention. When it's unattended to, then something like any system of spirituality can then re-trigger them. Mm. And so, for example, As I said, I started first in Zen, in Zen meditation. So I was, any of the negative uh, teachings and the negative influences from Yogi Bhajan, they didn't spill over into what I found first. Because you had a foundation first. That's right. And it was a foundation. That's right. And it was a foundation. um, I studied Zen first at the Trappist Monastery uh, outside of Amherst, Massachusetts and Spencer. And the Christian monks who I would sit with on a weekly basis had brought in, there was a, a fellow named Father Kennedy. And he was an ordained, I think, in the lineage of Bernie Glassman, Roshi Bernie Glassman, which is called the White Plum Sangha, but you know, I could be uh, incorrect on where he was ordained. But he would come and he would teach the Trappist monks uh, at this monastery Zen. And so that's where I learned it. And so I was able to quickly re embrace Zen without it polluting my entire approach to spirituality. So I'd like to clarify something because I I really appreciate what you're saying in terms of um, 
when one has experienced spiritual abuse or or practices that a teacher has then abused them then the associations are linked in our somatic memory so therefore one can collapse and, and associate these things and never be able to practice really good practices again because they're always triggered whether it's through meditation or chanting or community events or whatever the question i have in relation to yb and the opinion is there has been documentation that he actually didn't have the history or the yoga background that he kind of narrated he did and that he was actually pulling different practices from different practices and putting it together and calling it something so in having a relationship say with kundalini yoga you said not related to yogi bhajan my question is this i know that say breath has nothing to do with yb nervous system has nothing to do with him dynamic movement meditation chanting like all these things are are truths into and of themselves do you feel like he created a body of work that was actually something that he delivered or was he just taking practices that existed and he delivered it like any good cult leader would as a new identity well i think my answer to that has got to be threefold um first I actually don't know much about his history uh, in terms of who he studied with, who he didn't study with. What I do know, having interviewed him for many, many hours, was that he did have a fairly uh, cohesive uh, body of knowledge about pranayama, uh, meditation, uh, chanting, and asana movement. What he called, and I think is very, very important, is the reason why he always called it Kundalini Yoga as taught by Yogi Bhajan, or Yogi Bhajan, <laughs> was because he knew, he was smart enough to know because he was college educated, that eventually his past would catch up to him. And so that he was smart enough to know if he, if he uh, branded it as taught by Yogi Bhajan, then when he was taken to task of, well, who were the masters that you studied with and how long did you study with them and you know where, where they were uh, located? And just like, I don't want to retell the story again, but I'd like people to listen to podcast eight because of the story of a, he, he tells this incredibly grandiose story of commandeering uh, an army helicopter at the Delhi airport by gunpoint and being driven by the helicopter pilot to a cave in the Himalayas and shimmering down a rope and putting the gun to the, the Tantra master's head and it's just all nonsense, okay? It never occurred. It's just a kind of one of those things you, your crazy old Uncle Joe might um, tell you when he's like had his 10th beer, that you know it's just a giant fish story. <laughs> so he knew that by branding it as taught by Yogi Bhajan, that it gave him a lot of freedom to take from many, many systems that he most likely studied. And then I don't know where, and I think Pamela will, uh, would have the better uh, insider track to this, but I would say somewhere between 1969 and 1973, when I caught up uh, with him, is I, I think he underwent some kind of spiritual inner uh, deepening. Um, where he was able to pull from all of these other systems of meditation and pranayama training and sound current training, and even from, for that matter, um, Gurbani Kirtan and Gurmukhi um, and the Hatha yoga practices that uh, he studied. And I think he, with the, the inner shift that he experienced, coupled with being able to very, in a very kind of uh, talented way, as most inventors of any new system, 
most new systems are not just pulled out of the air. They, they usually have histories and foundations of other systems. And for example, I'll give the example of um, the founder of the S training, Warner Erhard. Um, he created the Erhard seminar training, but it was after he spent long lengths of time at the Esalen Institute studying Gestalt therapy and primal screen therapy. And he studied Scientology and he studied mind dynamics. And then when he created S training, Erhard seminar training, it was a very profound um, program. And I, I even took it. And as a trained psychologist, I was very surprised. I actually took it with him um, in some of his uh, co-trainers. And I was surprised and impressed that he had depth um, and that he was able to take a room of 250 people in the course of over two weekends um, and to deliver them to a very deep level of healing. Now, all of these human potential systems and spiritual systems are fraught with stories where, well, somebody went to a, a training or took a 10-day meditation course or a two weeks with Yogi Bhajan and then ended up jumping off a, a, the roof of a garage on Sunset Boulevard. There's all, there was a lot of spiritual uh, wreckage and psychological wreckage that, that occurred. Some of it we could absolutely attribute to the corruption in the teachers and the facilitators. But some of it, we also have to legitimately say some of those people were suicidal. They had suffered from severe depression, bipolar disorder. Some suffered with schizophrenia. And so, um, you know, they met a demise, possibly triggered by the practicing of a spiritual system or a weekend workshop on human potential. Um, but there was a pre-existing mind-body set that left them hyper-vulnerable and hyper-susceptible to being able to go off the edge. And so, so what I hear you saying in regards to YB, and I, I know you have to go soon, so we're going to have to bring you back because we could just go on in so many directions. Um, in Okay, in regards to YB specifically, I hear you saying is that you interviewed him for long periods of time. You know, you don't necessarily know his actual research background, but in terms of the mythical story that was, he did seem to have some great knowledge in terms of all these different things. And what you're saying is that like any inventor, any new modality, let's say modality or human development process ha hasn't just come out of nowhere. It's built on the foundation and probably many years of study with all these other systems in which one then synthesizes it into a new body of work of sorts. And you're saying that's somewhat what you feel he might have done in terms of his delivery of what Kundalini Yoga was. Yes, I, I think he actually did do that. I think he was a master synthesizer. And um, and again, I'll just reference podcast eight. I was going to bring um, that up. Yeah. One of the significant people involved in the Facebook page um, beyond. Um, beyond the cage. cage. Mm -hmm. yeah. When I said in podcast eight that I, I believed that he clearly had mastery over the sound current and mastery of understanding the inter connection between pranayama practice and mantra meditation. So I got a call, of course, and a woman was kicking me around the barn. How could I use the term that he had mastery? He wasn't a master. He was a, a, a rapist. Manipulator. And a, a manipulator. All true. I say, there's so many masters that are also master predators simultaneously, even as they're innovators and bringing forth all sorts of things that we partake in. They were also predators, whether it was any invention in time. Yes. Yeah. yeah I think Yogi Bhajan was a predator long before he became um, a yoga uh, master of, of Kundalini Yoga. And to the end of his life, I think he continued it because he got away with it. Um, had he lived 
in the Me Too time, he would probably be going to prison along with Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and the rest of these bad uh, chaps. But shortly before I left in 1979, my co-research partner, Rama Singh, um, we were the early scientists studying Kundalini Yoga, and um, we had a two or three hour exit conversation with him. Uh, because we told him we're going to leave, this is not for us. But we used about an hour and a half of that time to, in a very detailed way, ask him, well, are there formulas, are there axioms that you came upon such that every time you go up and you sit and you teach, it seemed to us as young scientists that you're pulling it out of your ass. You're just creating it as you go. And he said, that's true. But he said, but I stumbled upon either internally or through his own yogic practice prior to 73. I'm not so sure he did much sadhana or practice much of anything after 73, other than that he, he read from the Guru Granth Sahib. Um, Pam verified that to me when I saw her in December in Maui. She said that he did read uh, daily. Um, it was either from the Guru Granth Sahib or you know, some Sikh um, uh, teaching. He, di he did say in our exit interview that he clearly had come upon these axioms where if you applied these breath patterns with these mantras, and then you matched them with what I think he just pulled out of his hat, particular yogic postures, where he would then say, well, the yogic posture is for digestion and for uh, clean, cleaning the mind of negativity and negative thinking, that there was a certain amount of wholesome uh, mastery of what he was teaching in the technology. And again, I, I want to say, because we're on record, I think 90% though of what he taught in lectures was horseshit. And if you listen really closely, tonight we're going to be talking and we're going to be discussing neutral mind. The, the pearl was in the first two to five minutes yeah. because we transcribed these lectures and then wrote them up and had uh, artists draw the uh, photos of the postures. In, in transcribing 100, 200, 300 lectures, it would, it would, it's part of why I left. It was like, this is all nonsense. You know, I, I'm working on getting a doctorate in psychology and this is like garbage. He, but the first two to five minutes, that's where the pearls were. But the rest was just stream of consciousness rap um, mm. that made no sense about much of anything. Mm particularly his teachings on anything that had to do with psychology and humanology. And I don't think I referenced it um, in podcast eight, but if I did, forgive me, but I don't think I did. In 1976, me and my former wife, Ishwara Khalsa, had been called in. We were in this 10-day tantra course with him up in Santa Cruz. And so he called us in. And because he knew we were both working on our doctorates in psychology. And he said, um, Ishwar and Shama, tell me about um, how do you explain homosexuality? Like, what is it? Is it a disease? Is, is it a psychopathology? Um, and he was obsessed with anal sex with women, you know, in this conversation. And he was obsessed with, does it make, you know, if, if a heterosexual man likes to have anal sex with a woman, is it maybe like he's maybe homosexual? <laughs> and it was clear. We both looked at each other and we went like, this isn't even psychology 101. I mean, like, first of all, homosexuality is not psychopathological at, at all. It, it just is what it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> whether it's genetic, whether it's a preference, whether it's uh, 
some people um, are what's called a bisexual. Some people today are called non-binary. You know, they don't identify with either, either gender. But he had almost next to no understanding. And I think it has to do with what Pamela and I talked about in December on Maui. He'd been raised by Christian nuns. And so he had a very Catholic, a very Christian understanding of sex, which probably led to some of the perversion and some of the twistedness of how he liked to humiliate, denigrate women. Mm -hmm. um, some of the very, very, which I'm not going to get into. The uh, sadistic horror, the sadistic abuse, and then the disguise of the of the grace of God, like to elevate the woman and then to abuse her simultaneously to me is like really something I've had to spend a lot of years unpacking out of my body of like how it's showed up as self-abuse. Um, I, I just want to reiterate yeah. and ask you really to just say, I hear you saying there's mastery and you can hold the fact that he was a sadistic predator and you're holding both. Yeah, holding both and not excusing by holding the mastery and saying, does Kundalini yoga work as taught by Yogi Bhajan? Yes, it does. And how do I know that? Because if I do, and I do some of the practices to this day, you know, my main um, daily work is um, mindfulness and Tibetan. Uh, Buddhist practices. But if I do, and I practice some Kundalini uh, yoga meditations uh, on a daily basis, I know they work because I do them. And then I pay attention to what I subjectively experience. And so because I, I don't know if that part is included in the way the teachings were delivered. You pay attention to what happens reflectively in your body after doing a practice. And excellent. And that's a, a wonderful uh, witnessing uh, thought to the conversation. Because he wanted to be all powerful and all knowing, he didn't encourage what we call self-reflective thinking to discern what works and what doesn't work. And so, for example, there are a few practices, um, can't think of them, I don't want to give Sat Kriya a bad name, but there's a couple of Kriyas that I would never do again because after I do them, I feel tired, drained, depleted, and bummed out. Mm. And that's my subjective experience. However, if Tej Kakalsa, a modern day uh, Kundalini teacher, if she practices it and she tells me that she gets a positive um, benefit from it, then I'm not at odds with that because that's her subjective experience versus my own subjective experience. But if that teacher tells you you should be getting that and if you're not getting that, then it's because you're not doing X, X, X and X because you're not doing a bad enough sadhana, this or that, or this or that, which is often how this technology is delivered. It's not to create a reflective experience of what is my body feeling. And this is a part of what, the distinction I'm making is that he, what I feel mixed up, con really excellent nervous system, certain types of historical pranayama, mantras from the Sikh religion, real historical rooted practices, but con con convoluted them in the delivery in which a lot of us don't know how to track our own body because we're listening to the teacher around what we should be feeling versus what we're actually feeling. Yeah, wonderfully said again. And that's because gurus, and most of them are false and fake. When they want to control your mind, your behavior, um, and have themselves to be the ultimate authority, rather than teaching you, see, a real, a real guru is a cooked goose. For example, 
Ramdas's guru, um, Neem Karoli Baba, whom he studied with in India uh, for several years. He was already there. And there was a coherency and a cohesiveness to how he taught and, and what he taught. But everything was always about trust your self experience. And in psychoanalytic self psychology, you know, the two, the three forerunners, Heinz Kohart, Robert Stolaro, and um, uh, George Atwood, they all emphasize the importance of self-reflective thinking about any philosophy, any psychology, any spiritual methodology, any spiritual technology that you um, undergo to pay attention to what your own subjective experience phenomenologically is versus what you're being told you should experience. Now, there's nothing wrong for example, um, with being told, well, if you do Sat Kriya for 31 to 61 minutes, you're going to cleanse your nervous system. Well, try it. I mean, like if, if I do it tonight <laughs> after this interview, I guarantee, Nishan, I'm going to experience a lot of sweating. And when I lay down into Shavasana, I will probably feel in a great state of uh harmony and equanimity. But somebody else who might be in a traumatized state, if they were told to do Satkriya, it might remind them that they were hung in their closet and tied up as a child and left there for two days. And so that when they practice Satkriya, no, they don't get a sense of mind body energy cleansing what they get is a re-traumatization of early life uh, abuse so people have to sort out the control over their own mind regain and recapture that to then to just discern in what we call gestalt therapy the way that you sort out a negative interject you know and negative interjects come from belief systems thought systems in even um, emotional indoctrinational systems that we take in from the outside in, in essence, like an apple, we swallow it whole. Well, if you ever tried to eat a whole apple as a kid, it doesn't digest, you know? Oftentimes it just comes out all at once. But what Gestalt therapy teaches us is that if you bite into the apple and you, you like the taste of it, and then you continue to chew on the experience metaphorically because you liked the taste of the apple. Then you chew the experience and it goes down and it digests through your digestive tract. And then it adds to the um, nutrition of your physiology. On the other hand, in Gestalt therapy, we know that if you bite into the apple of experience and it tastes sour or bitter or incongruent, it's important to spit it out. And so that's what we call in Gestalt therapy, how you learn to discern and discriminate mm. between wholesome experience and unwholesome experience that comes from my experience, I, I know this, not because I was told to know it, but I know it because I've thought it through. I've read about it. I've studied it. And then I embrace it. I practice it. I interact through the prism of that, or the stencil of that uh, imprint. And it produces over time more positive or more wholesome life experience. Or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, and for example, many people who were victims of trauma in 3HO and the other spiritual systems, they continued to introject from the teacher that the reason that the yoga or the meditation or the mantras weren't making them feel happy or 
delivering them to bliss or ecstasy or a state of equilibrium or equanimity was because inherently they weren't doing it right or they didn't hold the right belief or they needed to do it longer or shit or shit or shit it was because those methods don't match they're not in resonance with what that person needs for whatever reason you don't have to know why you just have to trust that it's not in resonance even if this teacher is telling you this is what you should do if your body's saying no listen to yours first exactly in the body never lies george goodhart who was a famous chiropractor from the midwest in the early 70s always taught the body never lies yes. and i think modern day somatic uh, trauma expert uh, Bessel van der Kolk, yeah. who has a series of new books. The Body uh, Keeps Score, original one, and several more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, as well as myself, we embrace our body because it's intimately connected to our unconscious. Mm. And our unconscious is intimately connected to our nervous system. If you listen to what your body is telling you, in Buddhist psychology, all phenomena can be divided between wholesome positive experience, neutral, kind of vanilla, and or painful, unwholesome, negative self-experience. And so if you use that as kind of a stencil for when you're doing a spiritual um, system, whether it's vinyasa flow yoga or kundalini yoga, some people get injured in vinyasa flow yoga and they need to go to a more gentle hatha yoga system. Some people who practice uh, Ashtanga yoga can embrace Kundalini yoga, and they find that it's just a wonderful complement. Like, for example, there's a, um, a Vanyasa flow yoga teacher named Tommy Rosen, him and his wife, Kira, they practice Kundalini yoga. You might want to interview they them. Inter they, inter they interweave a lot of their practices that, they, that they've distilled, that they know work for them. I, I know that's beautiful. Yeah, and they teach, you know, in, a, in the way that I teach, which is don't listen to me, listen to yourself, listen to what your body's telling you. Mm -hmm. So if I teach a particular yogic or meditative approach, I say, don't listen to what I say it's supposed to do. Listen to what your body tells you it did. Listen to, did it... Um, calm down and bring your nervous system to a place of settling and calm abiding and uh, equanimity? Or did it actually flip you in a paradoxical way into a really bizarre and painful state? And if so, don't do it. So I want to bring up the challenge I've experienced because I really appreciate what you're saying in terms of somatic therapy and that the body always knows and learning to trust the body. And I really want listeners to really hear the, the authors he's speaking to because it's brilliant work, you know, really learning to trust our bodies. Yeah, like Peter Levine's, uh, Peter Levine's Waking the Tiger. In his second book, mm -hmm. Bessel van der Kolk's books on trauma. Um, this is my question in relation to the teachings, because while YB might have been a predator teacher, and if we put this body of work as still saying it's a technology that works, the, cha the, the, the problem I have is my body knew it, it was somehow not right. And so what I learned was that I had been trained that my I, into opposite. So when you had just said, if something doesn't feel painful, if something feels painful and not wholesome, then maybe that's not for me. What I had learned in growing up in this culture was that if it wasn't painful, then, then my identity didn't exist. It was like my identity was steeped in, it had to be painful for it to be a value. It was almost like my system had, a, had, had regulated itself to pain and abuse and it was called peace yeah. it had been called enlightenment and i realized that's not actually peace that's called hypervigilance yes yeah endomania um let me unpack that real quickly you and i have similar uh, body types and i think similar nervous systems 
the five and a half years <clears throat> that I actually did the physical part of Kundalini Yoga, I was in constant back pain and I was seeing a chiropractor sometimes two and three times a week. <laughs> and then shortly before I left, I took up with a guy named Jake uh, Kronish uh, Keshava. And he had been trained by Mr. Iyengar in India of Iyengar Yoga, which is the commensurate um, therapeutic yoga. It's just unbelievably excellent for treating uh, pain and physical uh, injuries. So when I switched over from Kundalini Yoga, the asana part, to um, Iyengar Yoga, and then from there I went on to study Vinyasa Yoga and um, Ashtanga Yoga, my back pain went away. And I hardly ever have back pain as a result of doing yoga, but I don't do Kundalini yoga. I don't do those posture sequences. They're not right for my body. They might, they're obviously right for the thousands of people who do it and for their bodies. The, the thing to unpack is that when you're told that inherently there's something wrong with you because a particular spiritual or psychological system isn't delivering you to well-being or healing, that that's the corruption in the exchange between the corrupt teacher who's trying to control your mind and control what you think, control what you feel, from the actual paying attention to, oh, well, the whole notion of if there's no pain, there's no gain. Right, because they were saying, oh, well, you, you just got to get that past that part because that's just your nervous system adjusting. Oh, that's just the that's just you moving through the Akashic records. Oh, that's just, and it's when teacher now they're plucking all the reasons why staying in pain is actually what your soul has to do. You're not doing enough seva. You're not doing enough simran. You're not doing enough. And so then the teachings themselves start getting bolstered in a spiritual abusive way instead of teaching people no slow the roll feel your body what's yeah. going on there does that diet actually work or are you actually getting hooked on the kind of sociopathic narcissistic somebody else knows more about me than i know about me exactly and any sophisticated practitioner of ashtanga yoga a yinga yoga, vinyasa flow yoga, and even some of the power yoga teachers will tell you that when you press up against the boundary between discomfort involved in a stretch and physiological pain, stop. That yoga is not a competition. I learned from Shiva Ray, the esteemed uh, vinyasa uh, flow teacher. Yoga, Dr. Ron, is not a competition. Don't look around the room. Just focus on your own body experience. That's a respect and a reverence mm -hmm. for what works, what doesn't work, and where my boundary of self-experience needs to begin and needs to end. And on that note, I gotta, I gotta end. <laughs> Can't thank you enough. Really, really appreciate you. Please let listeners know where they can find you again and um, what your upcoming book is. Um, my upcoming book is called Cork uh, Creativity, A Mindful Approach to Accessing Your Creative Abilities. It'll be out in spring of uh, 2022 from Roman and Littlefield Publishers out of New York. And you can find me on ronaldalexander.com and on openmindtraining.com. Thank Namaste. you so much. Namaste. We'll have you back again soon. Yep. Listeners, I can't uh, encourage you enough to go back and listen to our original episode, episode number eight, if you want to know more of his history. I also encourage you to be critical thinking right now, to do your own research. Um, please look at Do uh, Philip DeSlip's research um, paper on called From Maharaj to Mahan Tantric the construction of Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga. And you can um, Google that and read that so you get your, your most informed version um, of what you've looked into, what you've researched, what your self experiences. 
and Dr. Ron Alexander really gave us a great lens today into how all sorts of spiritual abuse and predatory abuse has come from all different communities and continues and it's not going anywhere. So our ability to feel what's happening in our body, to know what works for us right now versus what somebody is telling us it should or shouldn't do. And we're going to definitely have Dr. Ron back. Dr. Ron, I don't know if I'm saying his name, Dr. Ron Alexander back um, because there's just a lot more to unpack when it comes to learning to know what works for us, what's right for us at any given time and learning our body, somatic therapy, get the support you need and um, make a list of questions if there's more you'd like to hear from in regards to Dr. Ron Alexander's expertise. We will definitely have him back for another conversation. All right, this concludes another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you'd like to contribute to this podcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gudunishan.com forward slash uncomfortable conversations. If you'd like to be a guest on our podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via email at gn at gurunishan.com. You can also subscribe and follow me and support my provocative truth-telling work at gurunishan.com. Once again, listen to intention number 11. Do your own research. Draw your own conclusions. Get somatic therapy and other therapy as needed and take the space and the time that you need to do the internal healing because spiritual, psychological, sexual abuse, these things are very real and they live in the somatic memory of your body. Get the support you need. Thank you for listening and we will talk to you on another episode.